Turn with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 33 as we come to the end of our Lord's teaching. At this point in the Gospel of John, our Lord's formal teaching is coming to an end. The next chapter is His prayer, and after that, He's going to go to the cross. And so we look at the end of John 16, verses 25 through 33, and considering a gospel trope. Give attention to God's holy word. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you, tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, see, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that you yourself love us. And so in the name of Christ, we ask you to give us the spirit of Christ that he might speak plainly to us now about your glories and your love. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. A trope, many of you may know, is a figure of speech. It's just another word to speak about uh, a turn of phrase, the way that we might say something. During the, the spring, probably one of the days, it will be raining cats and dogs. That's a trope. It's a figure of speech. Now, people are considered knowledgeable, people are considered wise when they're able to explain tropes. They're able to explain difficult and obscure sayings. You may recall the opening of the book of Proverbs. To give the young man wisdom and discretion that he might understand the words of the wise and their dark sayings. The language that Christ uses here, the New King James translates it as figurative language. Uh, I think the King James is a little better. The King James translates it as a proverb. These things I've spoken to you in Proverbs. So Christ is referring to these uh, obscure and difficult ways of saying things. 
And as I mentioned, some, some are considered you know, educated and intelligent and wise if they're able to explain these things or if they're able to uh, turn a clever phrase that gets your attention. If you can do this in a foreign language, people think you're doubly wise, that you are doubly educated. There's a very famous figure of speech from Julius Caesar where he says, the die is cast. Some of you may have heard that phrase before. Some of you may not have heard that phrase before. When he had crossed the Rubicon, which was the first time that a Roman general had led an army across the Rubicon River going towards Rome, he said, the die is cast, meaning the dice have been rolled, it's up to fate now. Now, a common mistake that we can make in the things of God is to think that the kind of wisdom you need to understand Caesar's phrase, the die is cast, the mistake is to think that that kind of wisdom, the wisdom of the academy, is the kind of wisdom that we need to advance as Christians. The wisdom of the gospel is not the same as the wisdom of the world. The knowledge of the gospel is not the same as the knowledge of the world. The wisdom of the gospel is first to recognize the gospel is a mystery. It is a deep, hard, profound, and obscure mystery. The second part of gospel wisdom is to recognize that the mystery of the gospel is not understood according to the wisdom of the world, but it is understood according to the wisdom of faith. This is what Christ leaves us with at the end of his formal teaching in the Gospel of John. He leaves us with this declaration of the mystery. But he doesn't just leave us with the mystery. He shows us the way to understand the mystery of the gospel. Specifically, he says this. He says that the mystery of the gospel is experienced in prayer. It is hidden from the proud and it is displayed on the cross. The mystery of the gospel is experienced in prayer. It is hidden from the proud, and it is displayed on the cross. We're going to see these three things in this passage. The first, verses 25 through 28, the mystery and prayer. Verses 29 and 30, the mystery and and pride. Verses 31 and 33, the mystery and the cross. 25 through 28, the mystery and prayer. 29 and 30, the mystery and pride. 31 and 33, the mystery and the cross. And so we begin with the mystery and prayer. Remember the context where we are in John 16, the last time I was... Uh, we were here two weeks ago. We looked at verses 23 and 24, and we noted 
that the way to enjoy the cross is through prayer. You see what Christ says, in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. When he says in that day, he's referring to his completed work on the cross and his time of ascension at the right hand of the Father. He's referring to the time when the Holy Spirit is poured out as the great gift of Christ's sufferings. At that time, you will ask me nothing. But whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give it to you. And so the context here is that it is through prayer that we enjoy the benefits of the cross. Now he goes on to explain a little bit further what he's referring to. And he starts in verse 25 and he says, These things I've said to you in figurative language. If you're reading the King James Version, it will say a proverb or proverbs. This refers, the Greek word refers to a proverbial saying that is obscure or profound. It's, it's, a, it's a saying that is difficult to understand at first, but it contains a deep truth. Now, many times we think of figurative language as doing the opposite. Some of you may know the story of the... Uh, the oracle of Delphi. One day there was a king named Croesus, where we get one of our tropes from, rich as Croesus. He was an extremely wealthy king in the ancient world, and he was wanting to pick a fight with Cyrus the Great of Persia. Now, as a good pagan, before he goes to fight this fight, he goes to the oracle of Delphi. And at the oracle of Delphi, he asks her, What will happen if I go on this campaign? And the Delphic oracle tells him, a great empire will fall. A difficult and obscure saying. Of course, he took that as, I'm going to defeat Cyrus. What actually happened is his empire fell. This is a a pagan, Greek, and worldly way of thinking about proverbs and obscure sayings. It's a clever trick. It it doesn't conceal a deep truth. It's just a clever turn of phrase that actually hides the truth, which was not that hard to understand. The gospel is far different. When Christ speaks about figurative language, the, 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 the proverbs of the gospel are very different. They conceal a profound mystery that we are not able to comprehend. Think about it this way. Perhaps you've uh, seen pictures of Eskimos. They live way up in the north. And in the, the world of the Eskimo, they're surrounded by snow and ice. Everything is white. And when the sun shines, they're in danger of what's called snow blindness. That white light hitting the eyes will blind you if you don't take precautions. And so what the Eskimos do is out of bone or wood they'll carve these goggles that they put on their faces and there's tiny little slits in the goggles. Perhaps you've seen pictures of these things. Tiny little slits that are meant to conceal the most amount of light possible and yet allow them to see because if they didn't conceal the light, it would blind them. 
That's what a gospel trope does. There is profound truth and glory in the gospel of Christ that if Christ doesn't bring it down to our level, it would undo us. And so he has to say these things in a figurative way. He has to conceal the deep truth. Now, what is the mystery of the gospel? You're perhaps asking yourself that question. What is this profound truth that Christ is speaking about? Quite simply, the mystery of the gospel is that God was manifested in the flesh. Turn to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, 16. Uh, Starting in verse uh, 14, Paul is giving Timothy instructions in 1 Timothy, which we might call the apostolic book of church order. And he says in verse 14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Notice what he says next. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received into glory. The mystery of the gospel is that the eternal, invisible God manifested himself in the man, Christ Jesus. How does this work? I don't know. How can the God who upholds all things by the word of his power become a helpless babe? How can God who upholds all things, including the heartbeat and the breath of the men who nailed him to the cross, take on flesh, And be nailed to the cross while he's sustaining the life of men who murdered him. This is a profound mystery. That's what Paul tells us here. Now notice in John 16 he says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. Just a little bit more uh, sort of justification for this interpretation of the mystery. The things he's speaking in figurative language. Turn to John 14. The whole discourse begins with Philip's question or Philip's statement in verse 8. Show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. And then Christ responds to him and says, Have I been with you so long and you have not known me, Philip? You see how Philip is miss He's not getting it yet. He doesn't have goggles on. He has blinders on. He says, show us the Father. Christ says, I am the display of the Father. This is the mystery. That the Father is displayed in the Son incarnate. And so Christ says, I've said these things to you in figurative language. During his incarnation, he taught in Proverbs and parables. Dark sayings that were concealed. But then he says, after his ascension... He will teach it to us plainly. Look at what he says, verse 25. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language, 
But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. After his ascension, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And once the Holy Spirit is poured out, then men are able to understand the gospel. Men are able to receive the truth of Christ. Notice what he says next in verse 26. Look at the order of our Lord's teaching. The time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And then in verse 26, he moves to prayer. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that you shall pray that I shall pray to the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. If we can summarize, I'm sorry, in verse 28, Christ then summarizes his doctrine. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and I go to the Father. God was in Christ. He came down to teach us about the Father. We, united to Christ, ascend back to the Father. That's the point of verse 28. Christ came into the world, brought his people up back to the Father. This is a profound spiritual mystery that God was in Christ during the incarnation and still now he's in Christ. But the other side of the mystery is that we, through union with Christ, are now seated in heavenly places with Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. This is a spiritual dynamic that can only be known by faith. Look at what he says. Verse 27, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. It's a spiritual dynamic that is only understood by faith. And this faith and this mystery of the gospel, this reality that God the Father loves you is exercised in prayer. Look at what he says. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray to the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you. What what a gift. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, where the love of the Father for his people is described Jeremiah 31, verse 7. Jeremiah is prophesying about the new covenant in this section. And he says in verse 7, Sing with gladness for Jacob. Shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim and give praise and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country. Skip down into verse 9. They shall come with weeping and with supplications. I will lead them. 
I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Keep reading. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. Skipping down to verse uh, 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Understand why this metaphor is put in here, this trope as it were. Just as a mother who has lost her children and can never bring them back from the dead, so also the father yearns over his children. Keep reading. Verse 18, Surely I have heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me and I was chastised. Like an untrained bull, restore me and I will return, for you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning I repented and after I was instructed, I, ins- I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. Now the Lord begins to speak. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. And I will surely have mercy upon him. Those of you that are parents have experienced what Jeremiah is describing. You're maybe sitting at your house. Maybe you're at the park. Maybe you're at the restaurant. The kids are off playing out of your sight. And you hear that voice. You hear the crying and the screaming, just as Ephraim bemoaning himself. I have heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You hear the voice, and then your heart jumps up into your chest. Your heart rises up, and it feels like your bowels are in your throat, and you're ready to run and save your child. That's what the Lord is describing here about his feelings towards his people. The Father himself loves you. What a mystery. This is exercised in prayer. Notice in verse 18, Ephraim is praying. Earlier on in Jeremiah 31, verse 9, they shall come with weeping and with supplications. Christ says in John 16, Whatever you ask in my name, I say, I will not ask it for you because the Father himself loves you. If you would know the love of God the Father, pray. Go to him in prayer. The great mystery of the gospel is not known through philosophy. It's not known through theology. It's known through the discipline and the joy of a child crying out to his father and the father answering. Go to him with supplications. Go to him with weeping. Weeping with joy. Weeping with sorrow. Weeping simply to be with your father. This is the mystery of the gospel. That you and I have fellowship with the eternal God. 
And Christ says in that day, I will speak to you plainly about the Father. Let me just seal up this point by just saying this. Martin Luther one time said he had learned more about God and Christ after 30 minutes of prayer than he had after three hours of study. That's what Christ is saying here. Go to your Father and you will know that he loves you. Well, not only does Christ speak about this great mystery that God the Father has revealed in the Son, and he tells us that the way to know about this mystery is in prayer, we then find in the next section how this mystery relates to pride. This is verses 29 and 30. You see, the disciples say to him, See, now you're speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. The disciples here are are a bit overconfident in their understanding of what Christ is talking about. They say that you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech, directly contradicting what Christ said earlier. I have spoken these things in figurative language. The time is coming when I will no longer do that, implying it's not right now. The disciples say, oh, you're, you're speaking plainly. We understand you perfectly. They're a bit overconfident. There is truth in their statement that they're, they're able to understand some of what's going on. They're not completely blind. They, they are able to understand some of this. Uh, they were able to perceive it, but with the little knowledge that they had, it led them to be overconfident in their own power. Now, many of you are probably thinking of Peter, where Peter will say, if all men depart you, I will not forsake you. And of course, Peter's the one who's predicted to betray. Several of the gospel accounts record, however, that all of them said that. Peter was the spokesman and the leader, but they were all the followers. So all of them were making the same boast. Likewise here, it's the same kind of thing. Uh, We know that no one should ask you. A little bit overconfident. This is the reason, by the way, for the correction that's going to follow right on the heels of this. Christ is going to correct them in verse 31. Now, I think we need to take a lesson from this, just the mystery and pride. Turn to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They strut up to Christ and say, uh, uh, Who is the greatest? Give us the pecking order. Tell us how to achieve king of the hill status in the kingdom of heaven. Well, then Christ answers them and says, Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child, 
is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What are children like? Little children. Little children trust their parents instinctively. Child's in trouble, they call out for daddy. Child is sad, they call out for mommy. Many of you parents, mothers especially at home with the kids, have experienced this and it can sometimes be a source of frustration. I just need to get the chores done. I would like to not have this kid pulling on my apron strings all the time. Understandable, not criticizing it. But you see what happens with children. When they get into a tight spot, they go to their parents. They trust in their parents. They don't rely on their own strength. That's what Christ is saying. Unless you are converted and become like a little child, you cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you trust your heavenly father the way little children trust their parents, you cannot enter the kingdom The disciples are a little bit overconfident. They got a little bit of knowledge. They got a little bit of understanding, and they thought they understood the whole thing. You know, uh, one time I was working at a summer camp, and uh, it was a, a summer camp with a high ropes course. Some of you may have been on high ropes courses. And as an instructor, you know, we we tell the kids that you need to follow the rules and Before you start climbing, there's a certain call that you go through. You say, the climber says, uh, on belay, and then the the person that's belaying them with the safety rope says, belay on. Then the one that's going to climb says, climbing. The other one says, climb on. It's a safety protocol, so someone doesn't get out ahead of you and get hurt. Well, one time I was working the cargo net. There was a cargo net going up into the ropes course. And this, this young, eager kid, 10 years old, I get them all hooked up. Safety harness is on, uh, but I turn around and make sure that my stuff is ready before I let him climb up the net. Well, what does he do? He just charges right up the net, and then he fell. About two feet, nothing major, but he was overeager and overconfident, and it resulted in him falling off. Likewise with the disciples, they're overeager and overconfident because of the little bit of knowledge they have. Notice also in verse 30, the way that they describe Christ. Look at the words that they use. We are sure that you know all things, intellectually perceive, and are the smartest one in the world, is essentially what they're saying. We know that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. We know that you have all the knowledge. We know that you're able to answer any question that is given to you. And because of this, we believe that you came forth from God. You see how the emphasis is on the intellect. The emphasis is on knowledge as a weapon of debate that they're emphasizing here. So we need to humble ourselves as little children. And how do we do that? Well, the way that we humble ourselves is to follow the example of Christ. That's where he goes now with the mystery and the cross. Verse 31, Christ corrects them. And he says, do you now believe? You got a little bit of theology under your belt, but do you really believe? Indeed, the hour is coming and has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. 
Christ holds out his own coming crucifixion. He points out to them that when I'm crucified, you who say that you believe in me, you who say that you trust in me, will be scattered and I will be left alone. All human support is taken away from Christ. There was nobody there from a human perspective to help him. He went there alone. Notice what he says next. This is where he gets to the mystery as it was displayed on the cross. All of you will leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Here's the mystery in action. Here's the mystery displayed. God and man united in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, even while he's on the cross, suffering and dying, bearing the wrath of the Father, the creator and sustainer of all things, bleeding on the tree. Here's the mystery in action on the cross. Christ lived in the reality of this mystery while he was on the cross. You remember what our Lord said while he was on the cross? Matthew 27, 46. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Understand the dynamic that Christ puts forward for them. You say that you believe. You say that you understand this mystery. I'm going to show you what this mystery means. As I'm bleeding and dying on the tree, I'm praying to my Father because he is with me. That is the mystery lived out and experienced. That's what Christ holds out to us. This is how we humble ourselves, by following his example. He then commends his own example to their faith. Look at verse 33. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Christ is telling them all of these things. Because it is only in him that they access the Father. He's revealed all of this glorious mystery. Reconciliation with the Father only happens in Christ. And Christ has told us all of these things so that you would believe in him. And believing in him, you would have peace. He goes on. And he says, in the world, you will have tribulation. This word in Greek for tribulation, it's a word that means to crush or squeeze. This is what tribulation feels like, doesn't it? Cancer, loss of a job, persecution, affliction. Feels like the straps are being tightened. Feels like the walls are closing in. It feels like you're under all of this pressure in tribulation and affliction in the world. Christ says you're going to experience this. You're going to have tribulation in the world. Not only the general experience of people in a fallen existence, but also as Christians. Everyone who names the name of Christ will suffer persecution. They will experience the pinch of being a Christian. Christ says, in the world you will have tribulation. Now there's a danger here that, that many of us 
We, we just need to recognize that there is a danger when we experience tribulation. Remember that the Greek word means to crush or squeeze, to close in? The danger is spiritual claustrophobia. You know what a claustrophobic fears? They fear being in an enclosed space that they can't get out of. The broom closet, maybe a, a small room. Uh, they fear being in a space like this because they can't see the way out. They feel alone. They feel enclosed. They're claustrophobic. We can have a spiritual kind of claustrophobia. When the pressures begin to build, when things are closing in around us, we can get a scared and try to get out of it, try to change our circumstance, try to change the situation, try to open the door. Spiritual claustrophobia is a great danger. Notice what Christ says. In the world you will have tribulation. The pressure will build. But be of good cheer. This word in Greek, good cheer, it means to take courage. It means don't lose heart. Be courageous. Yes, the pressure is building, but be courageous. Be of good cheer. Don't lose heart. Why? Because the pressure will let up? No. Because I have overcome the world. And where did Christ overcome the world? At the cross, praying to his Father. He defeated all the enemies. That's why Psalm 22 is so glorious at the end. The word means to take courage. Uh, be of good cheer, that is. Courage is the virtue of enduring hardship. Courage is the virtue of enduring difficult situations, difficult circumstances. Courage is not getting into a rage and charging the enemy battle line. That's not courage. Courage is enduring hardship day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out. That's what courage is. That's what Christ is talking about. And so it's by faith in Christ and his example on the cross, his union with the Father, that he was able to endure. Now, he holds his example out to you. If you want to know this mystery, if you want to understand the figurative language of the gospel, you must believe in Christ. You must go to the Lord in prayer. You must endure hardship. Be of good cheer. Christ has already overcome. Great is the mystery of godliness. Greater by far than all the philosophy of all the scholars of all the ages. Look at Colossians chapter 2. We'll end on this. Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes in the same vein. Colossians 2.1, Paul writes and he says, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea. For as many as have not seen my face in the flesh... 
that their hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love, listen carefully, and attaining to the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I'm with you in the Spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, according to the clever tricks of the academy, and not according to Christ. Why, Paul? Look at what he says at the very end of this passage. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Christ, the mystery of God is revealed. Do not depart from him. Abide in him and pray to your Father and you will know the love of God in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word and for your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your love. We pray unto you, O Lord, because we would know you. We ask that you would seal your word in our hearts by your spirit and bless us as we serve you in the world. Help us to be of good cheer for your son has overcome the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.